Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. We'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13. And as we come to chapter 13, it's a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, We'll see uh, more of that uh, next week. But as we ended chapter 12, uh, Jeroboam of the northern kingdom and uh, God had already told Jeroboam before he had uh, taken the tribes out of uh, Rehoboam's hand, those ten tribes. Uh, God had spoken through the prophet Ahijah, and uh, he said in verses uh, 37 and 39 that I will take you, that's Jeroboam, and uh, you shall reign over that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I'll give Israel to you and I'll afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. And as we saw last week, We saw that here uh, Jeroboam believed that God could hand him the kingdom, uh, but he has a hesitation about God being able to uh, have that uh, kingdom, have that uh, basis foundation to have that sure house as David did. And so one of the first things that we see Jeroboam do uh, as he is king of uh, the northern tribe of Israel, northern tribes of Israel, is that Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there, and he went out from there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple for the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he sees the Lord give him um, this kingdom, but he's worried that uh, they're going to turn back. The people's hearts will turn uh, their own way. And he's concerned that they will turn back to Rehoboam, the, the king of the southern kingdom. So he tries to fix it himself. He tries to be able to establish himself in the kingdom and make sure that they're not going to go down to Jerusalem. So he makes two golden calves. He makes two altars, one in Dan, right at the very north northern part of Israel and one in Bethel, right about five miles or so from where Jerusalem is located so that people don't have to go down to Jerusalem to be able to sacrifice at this illustrious temple that Solomon had built. He not only does that, he appoints his own priest. We think he just appoints them because Levites leave. He actually appoints his own priest while the Levites were there. We looked at last time in 2 Corinthians. And he establishes his own feasts and celebrations just as they had in Judah, but he makes them their own. He really just tries to twist and distort that religion which was given to the uh, the people of uh, God through uh, Moses and how God was to be worshipped. He twists and distorts them, all making them his own, from his own mind and from his own heart, all to in his mind to be able to protect his kingdom. Um all opposed to what God and what he had been instructed in uh, the Word. Now we know this story. We've read this story before. What happened in the golden calf incident when the first one in Exodus chapter 32, here they are, they make a golden calf. Aaron says, worship this God. This is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And uh, while Moses is there with the Lord, um, uh, one quote here from uh, uh, Horatius Bonar, uh, he says in uh, one of his uh, books, In God's Ways, speaking of uh, anxiety and things like that, he, he begins in his preface by saying, All false religions, though outwardly differing uh, very widely, are made up of earnest efforts to secure for the religionists the divine favor now and eternal life at last. And this is what uh, exactly what Jeroboam did. He sought to be able to secure for himself this divine favor now. We'll see this right at the very end of this portion that we'll look at today. But he see, keeps to be able to have security now and then also for the end. However different they all look, they all seek to be able to find this end and outcome. But the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, here the Lord is speaking to Moses as Moses is away, and he says that I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation from you. So here there is judgment coming upon the people of God for their defiance of making an idol in which they are worshipping, breaking the second commandment. Um, that I think we'll argue when we get to Exodus chapter 32. But here, Moses is a mediator, but he's also the prophet. He's a mediator of the people, intervening for them, praying for them, while they're out of the picture, while they're not even asking to be prayed for. Here, Moses is as a mediator, but also the prophet, going down, and he's sent, and he's con- he confronts Aaron. Now, we see this in the exact same passage here. This is what happens uh, Jeroboam is, sins by making golden calves, and then what happens? A prophet is sent, and we see this all throughout the, the period of First and Second Kings. God sends prophets to be able to warn the kings and the people of their sin. Actually, all the prophetic books that we have, the major and the minor prophets, are all during this period of time in the divided kingdom where God is sending the prophets. Now we have 1 Kings, which I've, and even 1 and 2 Samuel, which I argue are actually prophetic books written by the prophet of the time, recounting the story of the history, what happens. And this is how God has worked. He worked through Moses, the great prophet, in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him. For all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all that of his servants and all to his land. For they are all a mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So what they're not saying is that Moses was an only prophet. What it's saying is there hasn't been a prophet like Moses who has seen God face to face. And then, not only seen God face to face, but also done the great and marvelous signs. Now, we've seen prophets rise up in Judges chapter 6. Here they are, they're sinning, making uh, with the Midianites. And here the Lord sends a prophet to them. Here they're in rebellion, and he says what the Lord says to them. I led you out of Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, who drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So prophets come, and Samuel, again, we looked at this as well, that here Samuel rises up as the prophet 
in uh, chapter 3, And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet from the Lord. Now I think it's very important for us to understand this prophet comes first, and the prophetic office comes first before he appoints a king. He, he, does, he finds out who the king is going to be. He anoints the king. But also here, it's a check and a balance that you have here. You have the law, and you have the prophet who is to uh, warn the people when they're varying and walking away from the law. But not only we had Samuel who was a prophet, we also saw when Saul was anointed as king... And Saul's anointed, he, he goes and he goes to Gilbert and he comes on this group of prophets that meet him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. So here we even have Samuel is a prophet and what you see is a school of prophets. And we see these schools of prophets might be uh, later in Elijah and their, Elisha in their period of time. So this prophetic office is there. Gad and Nathan underneath David, Nathan underneath Solomon, uh, Ahijah, uh, Shemaiah, Iddo underneath Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. So all of these prophets are, are there and they're sent by God to be able to uh, warn the leaders, particularly warn kings of their errors. So we're not surprised here that a king is meant to be underneath God's law. When a king is to be uh, anointed as king, and as he sits on the throne in Deuteronomy 17, the great famous passage that instructs in the law that there are going to be kings and how they're going to be, uh, what type of king are they going to be. And when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in the book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So you see the office of king and the office of priest. The priests are there to... Uh, follow through with the law, but also keep the law in the temple. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, neither to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So here the king was to write the law, but here the prophets were, come, were to come to be able to warn the people and the king of the, how, they were to, uh, how they were breaking or violating the law. And here one, uh, one professor called them their covenantal lawyers. They come in representing God, presenting his case, how the people of God, or particularly kings, are not keeping their Law, warning of the destruction that would come if they continue down that way. Now, last week we saw Jeroboam creating and making his own form of worship with his temple and his calves, his priests and his festivals. And what we see particularly is that this, then this thing became a sin for the people as he went to Dan uh, to go before one, one of these golden calves and these altars here. Uh, this becomes a sin. So through the king's action, it then causes all the people to be able to sin. We see this again in 2 Kings chapter 17. When he had torn Israel from the house of David and made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit the great sin. So here, underneath his rule, he leads the people astray. 
And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, and they did not depart from them. So you see Jeroboam's sins causing the people to be able to sin, this great sin of making this idol, worshiping uh, through these false ways. So what does God do in this situation? He said he's not going to discipline the household of David forever. What's going to happen to this nation? Well, the gracious, loving thing that God does first is he sends someone to warn them. Now, this is the principle we see in the New Testament as well. In Matthew chapter uh, 18, we see someone, not a prophet who gets a direct word from God, but we have the word. And if you see a brother sin, you're to go to him and to warn him of the sin and what's going to happen. Warn them of what walking in that way will actually do. When that doesn't happen, then uh, the elders come along and the church uh, eventually will excommunicate the person if they don't repent. But that principle remains the same. We don't then carry the the word of prophet declaring uh, God's word as, as some supernatural revelation. But what we do is we carry God's word and we represent God's word and we point them to our brother or uh, a wayward sinner, and call them to repentance. And this is exactly what God does. We're told in the very first chapter, in the very first verse of Hebrews, long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is how God spoke to his people through prophets. Many times, many ways, he does this. So this is exactly what we see, the pattern that we're going to get used to. As we go through First and Second Kings, as we mention, as we look into the historical factors, but then also mention other books as well. So in verse 1 of chapter 13, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. So here this man of God comes, a common uh, phrase used for a prophet, He doesn't have a name here mentioned. It's not uncommon. Again, in Judges chapter 6, we saw that a man of God came and presented uh, to the people of God the word of the Lord. But we are told one important piece of information that he comes from Judah. Now, we'll get back to this. Now, personally, I believe this is Shemaiah, uh, the the word uh, to hear and to obey the Lord. Why? I just, there's... You look back in chapter uh, 12, in verse 22 and 24, where he goes to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all house of Judah and Benjamin, and the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or to fight against your relatives of the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, from this thing is from me. So to listen to the word of the Lord, and they came, went home again according to the word of the Lord. So we're told here specifically that Shemaiah is the man of God. Now this is how this prophet is referred to throughout this whole chapter 13. Now, it's merely just uh, a connection to that, that you, you look, it's just right there. I'm not going to die on this hill, but that's my theory. But I think what we see then is this contrast between how Uh, Rehoboam responds to God's word and Judah and then how Jeroboam and Israel responds. Now I think it is important why he is from Judah. I think that is because that we find out that he's only about five or so miles from the border 
of Judah. And that's important when we look at the next portion in chapter 13. And probably about five, six miles from Jerusalem. But it's important because Jeroboam here is in Bethel, right near Judah. And he is worshiping. And why did he set up this altar? Why did he set up this golden calf? In verse 27 of chapter 12. If this people go... Uh, to offer sacrifice in the temple Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He set up this so that they wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem. And here comes a prophet from Judah saying, you should destroy this temple, this altar. So you can see why he's, he's conflicted here. And we kind of see how he handles. But he comes to Jeroboam. What does he say? We see this in verse 2 and 3. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. The human bone shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is a sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. So he comes bearing two, new, uh, two factors for this prophecy. One is very far in the future, where he prophesies that a son of David, Josiah by name, will come and he will destroy the priests on this altar and they will be burned. And here, so he's speaking of Josiah, King Josiah, a great reformer um, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, 23. That's how far away this prophecy is dealing with. In years, about 300 years, in Bible study terms, probably about a year and a half before we get there. But here he tells them this is what's going to happen, specifically by name and the specific details of this. And he tells Jeroboam, that this altar would be destroyed by one in the house of David. Now, he doesn't know what timing this is. But again, you think about why he established this so that people don't have to go down to Jerusalem. And now he's worried that people after Josiah could be the next son, the next king. And he's worried maybe this is going to happen, that they're going to come in and destroy his temple, and then he's going to lose his kingdom. They didn't want to be able to turn specifically, turn back to the house of David. And here the prophecy says, someone from the house of David will come and destroy this temple. Or even back to Ahijah's prophecy in chapter 11, where Ahijah tells him that I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So here maybe in Jeroboam's mind, this, this, this kingdom that he has is very temporal. So why not try and establish it to be able to last forever? But specifically what's interesting about this prophecy, this prophecy is actually against, not Jeroboam specifically, but the altar. It cries out, O altar, O altar. Many times you see throughout this whole passage that it's centered really about the altar. This shows the key problem. The problem is Jeroboam making this altar but what ultimately ends up being the problem is the altar that Jeroboam made. Now that might sound a little bit convoluted. Jeroboam sins by making the altar, 
But that's not the height of the sin. The sin is when people start to worship on this altar as well. You see this in chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. And he set one in Bethel and one he put in Dan, these altars, these golden calves. Then this thing became a sin for the people as went far to Dan to be before one. So Jeroboam is sinning in making them. And then also the people are sinning and going to them and worshiping at them. But his prophecy is not only about what Josiah is going to do in the future. But the, the test, how do you tell if someone's a true prophet or false prophet? Well, what they say comes to pass. So how do you tell if someone's a true prophet or a false prophet if the thing that they say is far into the future? Do you heed their words or not? So often this is what has been paired before, uh, paired often, and I frequently try and point out, is a prophet not only carries the word of the Lord, but he also carries signs that accompany the word that prove that they are truly the word of the Lord. The signs don't trump the word. The signs are there to be able to confirm the word to be true. So this is exactly what he does in this instance. He says that there's going to be a time where this altar is destroyed by someone from the house of David, Josiah by name. But here's the sign that you're going to know today. Here's how you know that I'm a true prophet of God. The prophets need to be listened to by this confirmation of the signs. Again, Moses is telling the people that they're going to be delivered, they're going to be set free. How do they know that he's a prophet? Well, the first sign that they saw that, that confirmed that he was a prophet was his staff was turned into a serpent. So here the prophet tells Jeroboam that the altar is going to be uh, torn and the ashes are going to come from the altar. In future, that's what's going to happen under Josiah completely, entirely, but here's a partial sign. Now it's important, again, to be able to see that the altar is going to be torn. What happened to the two kingdoms? The kingdoms were torn apart. The image of, of tearing was vivid in the uh, prophecy that Ahijah told to Jeroboam. The ten tribes will be torn as he torn that new robe before him from Solomon's son and given to Jeroboam. Why was that kingdom torn from Solomon's hand and Solomon's son's hand? Well, because Solomon built altars and to worship false gods. He turned his heart away from God. And what is Jeroboam doing? We're seeing the same imagery happen here again. So the altar is going to be torn down and burned in 300 years. Now, that's also to give us a little bit of a hint as well. Now, you just go to the end of chapter 13, but here we see that it's not finally defeated here at this moment. The altar is torn and the ashes spilt from the altar, but it's not entirely gone. How does Jeroboam react? Well, he rebuilds it. But how does he react here at this moment? In uh, verse 4, we see his immediate reaction. And when the king heard the same from the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, 
Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. So Rehoboam is told in, in the southern kingdom, for a word from the Lord, that this thing is from me. And he packs up his bags, and he retreats from a fight to be able to save his kingdom. Here, the prophet comes to Jeroboam and warns him of what is going to happen. And Jeroboam does not retreat, does not listen. He returns back to fight the prophet to be able to seize him. This is the reaction that we're going to see time and time again. And in fact, that you could argue has been the reaction ever since the very beginning. Here is God's word come. And one of the things that happens uh, time and time again is they're attacked for preaching the Word of God. You just think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist went in and he confronted uh, Herod and what happens? Well, he gets beheaded. Well, this is the warning that uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23. You serpents, you brood of vipers, after the seven woes that he sells them, how you are to escape being sentenced to hell. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the righteous, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, uh, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come to pass upon you in this generation." So he arrived from the very beginning. We, we get an insight here that here Abel is a prophet. And he goes, most likely to confront his brother Cain. And what happens? He strikes him down. Zechariah. So no one really wants to be a true prophet. It's not an a appealing job. You don't get a lot of friends. You don't have a lot of influence. Although you carry the word of God, you don't necessarily find a lot of friends. You think, even you think about Moses. Moses' family even turns on him. The false prophets, they're the ones that live at large. They've got the nice house. They, they're friends with kings. The true prophets get killed. So we see the sign, not only of the hand withering as he says, seize him. But also, just in verse 5, just flippantly, the author tells us that the altar was torn down. And the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. You just think about this event in this scenario. This, here the, the, the prophet comes at the altar and he warns them of what's going to happen. He tells them of the sign. Here immediately Jeroboam comes and says two words, seize him. His hand withers up within him, and the altar is torn in two, and ashes from it splurts everywhere, just as the word of the Lord had told uh, through the man of God. Now, we have no idea what happened, probably an earthquake of some uh, sense, but enough to be able to affirm the word of the prophet, to be able to confirm what he said is true. So Jeroboam has a change of heart. Fighting won't be able to work. So you need to be able to get this prophet on your side. So the king turns in verse 6 and uh, 7, and he says to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, 
that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. So first we see the restoration of the hand, the power of the prophet given by God to be able to wither, but also to be able to restore. Think again of that sign of Moses at the burning bush where he's there, and and the Lord gives Moses a sign to be able to confirm that what he says is true. He sticks his hand out, and it's leprous. He sticks it back in his cloak, and it comes out, and it's restored. But I think one of the most important parts of this whole story, uh, I think, you, you know, I often get thoughts of books you could write, and Here's one that I think you could definitely write that it would have all the material that you ever needed is, is on the use of personal possessive pronouns throughout the whole Bible. That within these small words attached to the word Lord carry great theological truths that help us understand. Here, uh, Jeroboam turns to this prophet who's the true prophet who says to him, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Not my God, but your God. Here he is worshiping. He's tricked and deceived the people, telling them that here, behold, these are the the gods who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he's tricked people to be able to say, this is the same God. We've just changed the date. We've just made minor, small um, changes to the schedule, to the calendar. But really, there's a great distinction. This is exactly what Saul did to Samuel. As the prophet confronts him about not listening to the word of the Lord, and Saul begs him and begs him, please come home with me, please come and stay with me. And, uh, and he says, no, no, no. But finally, uh, Saul turns to Samuel and says, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What Saul wants in this moment is just public acclamation and witnesses before people that he's doing the right religious thing before other people. But here the critical point is let me bow before your God. And so too, Jeroboam carries that same principle here in chapter 13. That here, this man of God comes and prophesies, and Jeroboam says, well, that's your God, that's not my God. We shouldn't be surprised at this. I really like the uh, uh, King James Version that we read last Sunday of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where here Paul says that he comes, preaches another Christ, whom we have not preached, or if you have received a different spirit from which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And here, so a different Christ, a different spirit, a different gospel. And here Jeroboam had done the exact same thing. He'd made a whole new religion. J. Gershom Machen in his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, a great book, but one of the key words there is right in the very title where he distinctively separates Christianity from liberalism with the word and. And so here Jeroboam has made up his own religion. He's made up his own God to be able to protect his own kingdom. 
And when we see and we get to Josiah, all of this comes to pass, just as the prophet had said. So the prophet come out and they call against the wrong that is done. And so too, Jesus did this whole same thing. Augustine points out that our whole design is when we hear a psalm, a prophet, a law, or a law, all of which was written before our Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh, to see Christ there and to understand Christ there. And here we see all these types and shadows, and here the type of, 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 of Christ is, is found in the prophets coming, delivering the word of God to his people to be able to warn them, to call them to repentance. That's exactly what Jesus did when he, when he began his ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Whereas the author of Hebrews points out in, in verse 1 and 2, Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. You just think about all the times that Jesus comes into the world and, and through his preaching and his ministry, he has confronted those that are around him, the Pharisees and the scribes. He prophesies in Matthew after the seven woes, and he ends by this in chapter 23, verse 36. He says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he laments, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then goes into Matthew chapter 24, where he tells the destruction of the temple, which had moved away, shifted away from what God had set apart to be able to worship them and, and, and all the, the things that Jesus said and the woes, how they're twisted and distorted, their oaths that they're making and, and make in the gold to the temple so they can claim it back after their loved ones had died and twisted and distorted the law to be able to fit their own knees that so they can tithe on mint and cumin but not look after the, the widows and the orphans. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He comes in to be able to warn those around him to be able to repent as the true prophet. And they're going to end with the, the prophet's words to Jeroboam. As Jeroboam invited him in to be able to, just as Saul was looking to do with Samuel, to be able to invite him back to his house that he might have some pro public proclamation and, uh, and a witness of others here, uh, Jeroboam seeks to be able to do that, to be able to come home to his house. But here the man of God says and returns to the king, and he says in verses 8 to 10, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread and drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So it seems here that the, the word of the Lord comes to this prophet, this true prophet. He, uh, he's, he's been given a word to be able to deliver at the altar, but he's also been given very strict instructions not to eat bread, not to drink water, and not to return the way that he came. Three things that he'll repeat verbatim throughout this chapter. Now what the interesting thing is, you'd think this would be the end of the story. You'd think this is where the author would turn and, 
and turn right to the very end of uh, in verse 33. And after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again among all the people, any of who he ordained but to be priests in the high places. And this thing became sin, and the whole house of Jeroboam, so it was cut off to destroy it from the face of the earth. So here you'd think that was the end, but that's not. We'll uh, find out uh, next week what happens to this prophet and how we try and understand how uh, he responds when confronted in another light. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.